Okay, welcome back to my podcast, Grandma. This is your first time on my new podcast, and I'm very excited to be here with Grandma Leah, for all of you that know her. We are going to be speaking about my grandma's love for nature. We had an entire conversation, like, back and forth about different ideas that we could speak about, and we decided that this would be the best one because I think that it's such an important major thing of your character and in your life. I would agree. <laughs> I've tried to think of a theme that goes through my whole life because you said, Grandma, I'd like to have five lessons from a 75-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, what? <laughs> and then I thought, what? what's a thread that goes through my whole life that is consistent for me? Mm-hmm. And my love of nature is consistent. You know, I I remember as a a very little girl going outside and just sitting outside when nobody in the family was around and just looking up at the trees and the sky and listening to the birds. And Mm -hmm. I just loved that. It felt like such a safe, wonderful thing. And then, you know, I would come inside, there'd be a lot of noise, a lot of dynamics. And, Mm -hmm. but whenever I would go outside and be in nature, I felt like peace. Not only an escape, but something beautiful, you know, something amazing. And that feeling of being in something wondrous, you know, I still feel that today. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I looked at different times in my life where I could really expand on that feeling. Mm -hmm. And, And I saw it was consistent through my life. I wanted to, like, before you continue, I want to open with a story of when we went boating on Passover, my entire family went, my cousins, my aunts and uncles, whatever. We all went boating. We went kayaking at Alita State Park. And, oh. <laughs> and me and my grandma got, we were partnered up. And we're like, oh my God, this is going to be so fun. Fine. We start kayaking with the group. I literally could not tell you how, but we got, I don't know how we, we were all together in a bunch and we somehow got away from them, not on purpose. Like we were trying to follow them. We kind of like took a wrong turn. And ended up literally miles away at a different, like, once we finally reached land, it was a different kayak shop. And so we had a lot of quality time on that boat because we were there for hours rowing while everyone else was, like, playing football in the water. I don't even know. And I remember that I learned when you were you were telling me, like, stories about your life. And most of the stories, if not all of them, I literally had no clue about. Like, not even just stories like little stories, but big life things. Like what? Like I didn't know that you lived in a kibbutz on Israel in Israel. Oh. And I didn't know that you lived in Chicago with your sister. And I didn't know that you lived in you like camped in Vancouver in the mountains. And I didn't know about the pigs and your friends. The pigs lay on oh. Tom. <laughs> there was so much that I learned from that. I I just didn't know, and I think that this is really interesting because it covers both stories from your life and like narratives as well as your love for nature and you kind of broke it down into when we were texting about it you broke it down to kind of five things or like five I'm not going to make it into like a stages thing because obviously like it all like intertwines it overlaps but like you picked like five main experiences which I thought was very interesting um you you picked experiences at Machanechutz at Mosheva you lived on a kibbutz in Israel and then you like said that you went camping and hiking in the Vancouver mountains and like would go for days at a time. And then you also, this I knew about, which you had a farm in Missouri. And then you also like sailing on the Atlantic Ocean. That I also, that I knew about from grandpa. So I wanted to start with the first experience. You, I mean, you said that when you were younger and like in your house and you would 
kind of go outside and like experience nature. But you, why did you pick experiences at Machanechat at Mosheva as the first? Right, because I remember when we would go out for overnight camping in the woods, and you had this experience also, right? Mm-hmm. How amazing it was. I remember there was an Israeli uh, shaliach that had come there, and he was showing us, like when they were in the army, they would learn if you duck down and you look at the sky from below, you could see the horizon line. Whereas if you're standing up, it's kind of dark. Mm -hmm. But if you kind of squat and walk down, you could see as the dawn was, you know, erupting in the sky. All that kind of stuff, I just loved it. Mm -hmm. I just loved that it was beautiful and it smelled great. And, Mm -hmm. you know, being in a tent. I mean, there were all these other experiences, part of nature, which are kind of like the downside. Namely, they had a contest, who had the most mosquito bites, yeah. I won, <laughs> you know. Or I put my glasses in my shoe next to my tent, and when I got up in the morning, I stepped into my shoes and yeah. broke my glasses, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's very typical but, of you. But anyway, but the love for nature and the smells of nature and the sounds of nature, mm-hmm. that was, you know, exposure that I didn't have at home in the city, which mm-hmm. I really loved. And what did that spark for you? It just sparked that, you know, that nature is something so big and so vast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, no matter what's going on inside of me, you know, my thoughts, my feelings, did this person talk to me or like me or all the kind of stuff that kids think about, it just seemed so little compared to the bigness of nature. Mm-hmm. So it kind of put things in a different perspective. Yeah, I feel that. I felt that a lot. I remember when we went on the chutz, that was like a really, I mean, when I went to camp, how old were you when you um, had these experiences? You know, probably like 12. Yeah. So I was around, like I, when I went to Mosheva and I was at the chutz, like I was around the same age and it's just such a different, like you feel like all your worries go away because you're so focused on like everyone, you have your, your group, your fire group, and then everyone has to go to the woods and pick sticks to like make the fire. And like, that is your primary concern. Mm-hmm. Like everything else goes away and even not on the chutz, but like whenever my family travels to national parks, like you just don't, you feel like all your worries right. melt and, away. And nature is healing you know mm-hmm. like I, I will tell my clients go and be in nature because that in itself it just absorbs all the mental activity mm-hmm. and so after that kind of that sparked the the idea that nature could be a healing source for mm-hmm. you how did you transition how did that experience differ from living on a kibbutz in Israel, if at all? By that time, I was 18. I had already done a year of college, and I went to Hebrew University in Israel, and, you know, I was in Jerusalem. It was a city, all the kinds of stuff of a city where, you know, buses and cars and getting here and there and supermarkets, and I really loved the idea of just being out in nature. Mm -hmm. So I sought this kibbutz, which was right on the Mediterranean. What's it called? Palmachim. Mm-hmm. It was a, a kibbutz that was um, established by Palmachniks. They fought before the 1948 war. They were the original, um, you know, liberation fighters for Israel. Mm-hmm. And, and I just went in there, I hitchhiked in and I said, can I come here? <laughs> and they said, 
okay. <laughs> and so I brought my stuff there and I, it was more of a life choice than just being in the beauty of nature because mm. I was now in a socialistic community where everybody shared mm -hmm. food and the children were in a children's house and it was a different lifestyle. Yeah. And it was a choice. And then they give you work. And the work that I chose to do was to be a dairy maid, namely, <laughs> I would milk the cows at three o'clock in the morning. Wow, how was that? It was great, I loved it. Mm -hmm. I would love walking over there and all of the cows and my friends, they mm -hmm. would go boom. <laughs> and you know, it was just a wonderful experience just to be in nature with the animals and, mm -hmm. um, and getting the milk and since I had such an early morning shift by morning time, by breakfast, I was done for the day. So yeah. I had the whole day to read and go to the beach. The Mediterranean was right there. That's and great. And do my thing. And I love that. You know, it was just, uh, it was more than just being in nature. It was being in a whole communal experience, mm -hmm. which was really interesting. And mm -hmm. it seemed, you know, like I'm not a capitalist. You know, yeah. I'm not all about making money. And this seemed perfect. You know, like people didn't need money. Everybody had what they needed. They didn't need more. They weren't consumers. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was great. Was that, was that how you were before that? Was You mean the socialistic idea? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure, you know, how much my political ideas were developed. Uh, but from camp, camp is kind of a socialistic thing too because... Yeah you're part of a group and everybody has to work together and it's teamwork yeah. and all that. So a little bit, it had that feeling of a communal experiment, even though that particular kibbutz wasn't religious. Mm -hmm. It was just, you know, Israeli secular, mm -hmm. but um, it felt very comfortable for me. Mm -hmm. And and I was politically like, you know, it was the beginning of, it was 1966. so. You know, it was the beginning of me developing my ideas about the way society should be. Yeah. Your po political awareness. Mm-hmm. That's great. And were you still taking classes at Hebrew U at the time? or you, No. It was after? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how long were you there for? On that kibbutz? About a half a year. Oh, wow. What What do you think? You think that the biggest lesson you you took from that onto your life is your political awareness and about how society should be? Well, I don't know that I got it from there, but you know, that was just one piece in the developing idea of the way society is yeah. and, and what's beneficial and what's not beneficial. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, the idea of equality is a big value. You know, I think everybody should be treated fairly. Everybody should have um, access to the same resources there shouldn't be this huge inequity, like one percent of the population making more than ninety yeah. percent of the population. You know, I I just think it's wrong. Mm -hmm. So that was an experience where there's another way to do it. Mm -hmm. Even though in Israel, kibbutzim are n no longer functional the way they once were. Mm -hmm. You know, when Israel was established, they needed to have kibbutzim because. So many immigrants were coming, and that was a way to absorb them. And mm -hmm. uh, but once Israel became more capitalistic, and people wanted to make more money, a lot of people left the kibbutz to go to the cities and to make it, mm -hmm. you know, financially, economically. Mm -hmm. 
I still believe that's a better way of life. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be living on a kibbutz in less than two weeks, so and I'm, that's going to be interesting. So your kibbutz is it is it entirely the way that I'm describing? I mean, I think they stopped having children's houses. You know, like the mm-hmm. people would have babies and then they would all go to the children's house where you know the mothers wouldn't or the parents wouldn't be caretaking for them it would be part of the communal all the babies would be in the children's house they would come to their parents house every day Mm -hmm. for cookies or something (laughs) but the parents weren't responsible for them so it's so different right I don't think they do that anymore I think the whole system has changed yeah I'm not really sure how it's going to be I know that my Israeli cousin was on it and he said he loved it your Israeli cousin who's that Barth Itai. oh cool he's my age um I'm really excited. I guess I'll have to update you because I have literally what, no... What kibbutz are you going to? In Hanatib. Okay, that's a B'nai Kiva kibbutz. Right? Yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah. B'nai Kiva itself is like that kind of like... Right. Communal... Torah Yeah, yeah. like very community-based. I'm excited to be exposed to a different type of lifestyle. Yeah, that's that's good. I mean, that definitely affected me because I never really believed... I never really bought into the values of you know, the generation where you're supposed to go to college and get out there and make money and be a success, quote. Mm -hmm. You know, like, what determines what a success is? Yeah. You know, for me, making money and being rich isn't my idea of what a success is, which is why I was able to live the life that I lived, because Mm -hmm. I wasn't looking for that. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking for that, then you have to get a job and, and... climb the ladder and all that stuff. I never wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. Tell me your most interesting experience or story from living on the kibbutz. It was January. It was really cold. And, you know, the person that would wake me up to go to the... the uh, cows? To the dairy, you know, to the cows, said, okay, Leah, Kumi, you know, wake up. And, and I just didn't want to get out of bed. <laughs> and I just pulled the covers over my head and I didn't get up. That is a total no-no. <laughs> you cannot do that. You know, the the community depends on everybody doing their job. Mm-hmm. And for me to just say, I don't feel like it, it was not acceptable. So mm-hmm. that that stuck with me because I thought, how could I do that? Yeah. You know, that was terrible. But uh, on a brighter note, that the, the kibbutz accepted lots of... Um, volunteers from different places mm-hmm. and mostly they were put in different little houses where they would be together so they could speak English because a lot of Israelis didn't speak anything mm-hmm. but Hebrew and um, it was a really interesting group of people you know from Denmark and from mm-hmm. India and from so when we would hang out together and have you know the, the thing is you, you have tea and cookies they have all these little like you see them in the store, the Osem tea biscuits. Mm-hmm. That's what they would have like in big barrels. Uh, you could take as many cookies as you want. Mm-hmm. And then we would get together and just sit around and eat cookies and have tea or uh, something to drink um, and, and talk and share our life experiences with each other. That was mm-hmm. really kind of cool. Do you keep in touch with any of the people you know? No. Yeah, I'm sorry, no, way. <laughs> no, that was a long time ago. Yeah, It's interesting, though. You met so many different types of people. Yeah, and you could. I mean, Israel is a great place for that anyway, because yeah. people are there from all over the world. Mm-hmm. 
But these weren't Jews. Some of them were just... Oh, really? Yeah, blonde D- Danish girls. Mm-hmm. You know, they come for an experience. It's like going to the Peace Corps or something yeah. like that. Interesting. And so you were there for half a year when you were 18. And the next thing that you told me about is camping in the Vancouver Mountains. But that was when you were married. Well, you know, I didn't get married right away. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, my story is not a typical Jewish you know, you get 18, 19, 20, and then you get married, and then you have some more interesting stories. So because Grandpa was not Jewish when I met him, it didn't seem like that was going to be a marriage that I was going to make. So we were together, and it didn't even, marriage just wasn't going to happen for me, I thought, Mm -hmm. that I'm just not getting married because it's too complicated. Mm -hmm. And so, but we were together, and then, uh, Grandpa said, I'm going to Vancouver. Do you want to come? And I was in school, and I said, no, I, I can't come. I'm trying to get my education here. I already had one year of school, and I was you know, just yeah. piecing it together because I was paying for everything by myself, so I had to work mm-hmm. in order to pay. And so I'd work and then pay, and then, you know, so I thought, this is going to take me forever. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to stop, in the, you know, so I said, oh, I'll come later. Anyway, he went. What was he doing there? Exploring. Okay. He had just graduated <laughs> from graduate school in art. Mm-hmm. And so he was free. And then he said, now or never, come, you know. Yeah. And he said, I'll come back and get you if you want to come. So I said, okay, let's do it. So we drove across country from Chicago. He traded a painting for a car mm-hmm. and we spray painted the car so it looked like a rainbow was shooting across country. It's so cool. And we got to Vancouver and um, he wanted to make art and um, but Vancouver was so beautiful. All of a sudden there were mountains and the Hudson Bay and the Pacific Ocean and it was just gorgeous. So we wanted to explore going into the mountains, and we would camp out, and we got this wonderful dog that I just loved named Spade, and we made a backpack for Spade, and we had That's backpacks. So, so So when we would go into the mountains, we had to really figure out, what do you take in there? Because you're not going to have any 7-Elevens around to mm-hmm. get uh, fast food. And so we um, had to figure out how much food to take, and pots and pans to cook mm-hmm. and all the stuff. So we would carry these backpacks that would be anywhere from 20 to 40 pounds. Mm-hmm. And then we'd make a backpack for the dog to carry his own food because we couldn't carry his food That's too. so cute. And then we would go out and it was just so beautiful. It was mm-hmm. just so gorgeous. And we would go out for days at a time and just hike. And the mountains there, you know, it'd be like 8,000 feet, you know, just with lakes and just stunning. So we did that. That's amazing. What was your, where was your home base in Vancouver? It it was a little bit outside of downtown. Mm -hmm. We we also had another funny story with that, which since we didn't really have money, which was a big theme in our life, we never (laughs) had any money. uh, We saw this old rundown house and nobody was living in it. And so we we asked around the neighborhood who lives in that house or who owns that house. And they said the guy next door. 
So we went next door, this guy named Oli. We said, what's that house doing there? He said, oh, it's run down. It's, I can't deal with it. He was an old man. So we said, we'll fix it up. Just let us live there for free. We'll fix it. Mm-hmm. And so he said, okay, you can do that for six months. And then you have to pay $25 a month. Mm-hmm. So How much was that back then? Well, maybe $100. Yeah. You know, it was really cheap compared to... Yeah. So we had this house. And um, so we fixed up the house. And Tom even um, raised the roof. You know, like he... The ceiling, he picked up the ceiling and put kind of a way to hold the ceiling up. So he made a loft up in the attic. So he used for an attic for a studio. And then he was painting up there. Anyway, that was Vancouver where we really, we got our first boat. We called it Oli Boat, (laughs) naming after our kind landlord who was, happened to be alcoholic, which is why the house was so run down. but we got this boat, we fixed up the boat, then we would go traveling in the boat, which had a little place to sleep and cook, mm-hmm. and we would go out overnight. It was great. Mm-hmm. So that's where we got used to the idea of, you could be on the land, you could be on the water, and it's all beautiful. Mm-hmm. One beautiful thing I remember was going out overnight and looking into the water. This is at the Pacific Ocean, and these phosphorescent creatures which I don't even know to this day what they were but you know like you put your hand in it was just like neon lights in there so cool there was animals that were just shining Mm -hmm. so fantastic what do you think was your biggest lesson that you took away from that experience well the whole Vancouver experience was like learning how to survive without necessarily being part of the establishment Mm -hmm. you know because if you think you need to pay your rent and mortgage or whatever people are worried about, then you have to join the establishment to make all that possible. But we were kind of into a survival mode, living off the self-sustaining, the whole idea that we could get by without joining society. Now, by this time, it was 1971, mm-hmm. and the draft for getting people to go to the Vietnam War was happening. Mm-hmm. So that was another reason that Grandpa decided to go to Canada because he wasn't sure about his draft status. And if he got drafted, he wouldn't want to go to war. Mm-hmm. So if he were in Canada, he would escape that. Mm-hmm. He wasn't the only person that thought of that. A lot of Americans were going to Canada to get away mm-hmm. from draft. So a lot of people were like learning about living off the land, not joining the establishment, because the establishment you know, was starting to look not so nice. Mm-hmm. Who is this establishment government that's saying we have to go into Asia and kill a lot of people because we want to colonize them or we don't want communism? You know, it's like really none of our business mm-hmm. what's going on over there, but because of money, and everything kind of boils down to money, money. Uh, that we're going to send boys to war. I already had a boy in my high school class that was killed um, in Vietnam. You know, so, so we thought we're escaping to Canada. We're learning how to live, not doing what society kind of expects us to do, is to just fall into line and do what 
we're told and go to war and mm -hmm. support this capitalistic society. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I learned is you can, you can buck the system. Yeah, you can live off the grid. And what was his art like when you were there? At that time, he was really experimenting a lot. Sometime I'll show you some of the drawings he did, which were amazing. Mm -hmm. He was starting to get into clouds. The work that he had done before was landscapes. Mm -hmm. But he started actually like making clouds. Mm -hmm. And he did this whole kind of sculptural happening where he filled up these big plastic things and tied them together to make clouds. So cool. I called Next Cloud, Please. <laughs> and and you can see that was a theme for him too because he loved nature just like I did. Mm -hmm. That that he looked in the skies and saw the clouds and was making clouds. Mm -hmm. In fact, for a while, he added that as a middle name for himself. You know, his name was Thomas David Segge. Mm -hmm. He had, he would sign things TDC Segge. For Thomas David Cloud Seggy. That's so funny. So after that, you ended up getting married. Not so fast. Not so fast. Right. Now, we lived together for seven years before we got married. So, um, so we had friends in Canada that were, they used to live across the street from that Oli house that we lived in. Yeah. And they found a farm and they were living on the land and we went to visit them and they were growing their own vegetables and they, you know, and we said, this is great. Mm -hmm. We want to do this. But land was very expensive in Canada. And of course, we never had money. So we, uh, we said, well, we're going to leave Canada. We're going to go into the United States and look for land. We had this, <laughs> it was funny because, you know, when you're just using your, inventiveness to kind of make things happen mm -hmm. we had a like a van and Tom cut the top of the van off and built upstairs with the cedar shingled roof so cool and we put in a wood-burning stove and to like to make it into an RV mm -hmm. he bought a sailboat by working for some sailing company he bought the sailboat which we used for a trailer and he hooked the sailboat up to the van that we were living in and we put all our stuff in there and then we drove down to California and we're looking for land everywhere and everywhere it's so expensive mm -hmm. but we were like seeing the country it was so beautiful then mm -hmm. we went we went to New Mexico we thought oh, maybe this will be a good place to live and then we we came up to Chicago and we parked the sailboat at his parents house and we kept driving, looking for land. And we went down to Illinois, mm -hmm. Southern Illinois, where his grandparents were from. Mm -hmm. And then we crossed over into Missouri. And then we looked in Missouri and we saw, uh, there was a newspaper ad for a log cabin. And we drove on this little road to find this log cabin, which we passed up because we it was covered by trees. We didn't even see it. And then we, drove around I said oh look at that it was a different log cabin not the one that was advertised and we drove to the neighbor and we said who owns that and they said oh that lady old lady died and she tried to sell us the house and the 12 acres for three thousand dollars but we didn't buy it 
So we said, well, let's call her. And we called it, called the family that inherited it, and they said they would sell it to us for $2,500. Of course, we didn't have any money. Yeah. But we sold the boat in Chicago for $500. So we made a down payment, and they said they would finance it. And so we just kept paying. And the friends that were in Canada in that farm that we liked, they said they would come and have a commune with us. Mm -hmm. So they sent us money to help pay for it. And then we got this farm. And we lived on the farm for a long time. They came down at one point. Didn't really work out so Mm -hmm. well. (laughs) It was 1973 and there was a a flood Mm -hmm. in Missouri. And so we couldn't plant a garden. Everything was mud. Mm -hmm. And they left. And then we stayed. How did you make how did you make enough money to pay after that? Well, we didn't need a lot of money cuz we were we had our own chickens and our own eggs and our own milk from we got goats and we had a big garden. So we didn't like we lived on very little money. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have a lot of cash, but we had everything we needed pretty much. Mm-hmm. And then um for the extra money that we needed to buy anything like tools or anything like that, we, I mean, I should say grandpa, because I couldn't do it, started a painting company, Mm -hmm. which was called Sky High Gypsy Painting Company. (laughs) Sky High because... He loves the sky and clouds? No, because he was going up on the top of barns, you know how big barns are, to paint the roofs of barns. Uh Was there a market for that? Yeah. Because, you know, all these farmers with their barns, nobody wanted to go up there. So, I mean, you think how fearless he had to be to get up on top of these roofs. If I think now, I would, don't go up there. But, you know, we were just kind of stupid. And he got a, a, what do you call it, an airbrush. And he would, you know, just spray paint the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And we would get paid. So he would paint up above. And I would do the down below, you know, like when we would paint houses, mm-hmm. he would paint the roofs and be up high. And I would paint, you know, like the window trims mm-hmm. and the doors. And that was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was summer kind of work. We yeah. would make enough money to have a few hundred dollars to buy a few things. Nice. Splurging. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's why it's so funny when I see you and, and your families, and it's like, oh my God, the stuff you have, the <laughs> amount of consumption, you know, it's just like incredible. It's a very different world. Very different world, yes. Definitely different world. And then after you ended up getting married. After we ended <laughs> yeah. up getting married, then it was a whole different story. Mm-hmm. Because we moved to the city and, you know, had our first child, which was Aniel. That was difficult because we were not used to being city dwellers and we didn't yeah. really like it. Yeah. And um, when Annie w- just turned two, we said, let's, let's hit the road, Jack. Let's get <laughs> out of here. This, we don't like it. So we, we went to Europe. Mm-hmm. We saw, we, like everything seemed kind of serendipitous. Like when we moved to St. Louis, we didn't really have money. Mm-hmm. Somebody offered... Uh, grandpa a job selling insurance, which yeah, no. you can imagine was not his yeah, no. <laughs> nature, but he did very well because he did well at whatever he did. Yeah. And um, 
and then we thought, where are we going to live? We rented a place in St. Louis and it wasn't so great. And then I don't know how we even found out about it, but this guy said, oh, there's such a nice couple with a baby. You know, we have this house that we want to sell, mm-hmm. you know, because we were going to rent it. And he said, why don't you make a deposit and buy it? He made it so easy for us to do that. You know, we put a deposit down instead of paying rent we were paying to buy this place and two years later we sold it and made eight thousand dollars profit nice that's great that was great so we said wow eight thousand dollars that was more money than we had in the last decade yeah let's go to europe (laughs) so we went and we got there and with a two-year-old i mean when i think how crazy that is people say you're going to europe with but we we found this great Volkswagen van that had a a crib on top if you could believe it and mm-hmm. Annie slept up there and had the kitchen and the a tent that would come out from it so we just drove all around England and Scotland and mm-hmm. camped out and um, then we came to France and and Spain and Italy but it was starting to get cold mm-hmm. so then we went to Israel and we were thinking like where do we want to live you know like we're not really city dwellers. What are mm-hmm. we going to do? We looked around in Israel. It didn't seem like that was happening for us. Mm-hmm. So Tom went back and found a place in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And I flew back with Aniel. And we started our life there. And then your dad was born there with Uncle Danny. And we lived there until Annie was 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. And then we moved to Florida. I can't believe I, I literally did not know you guys just took Annie and went to Europe. Yeah, it was crazy, but it was great. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the first time we went to Italy and and met his family yeah. uh, that was still living in, you know, where his... Let's say again, but... Where his grandmother was born, seeing yeah. that bed and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we met, you know, some of those people, they're no longer alive, but it was so great, you know, they were... Bambina. Yeah, they're so nice. They're the best. They were so great, and and we felt so welcomed yeah. and warm, and it was wonderful for Grandpa to to meet them. Yeah, and Daddy's still. My dad is still close with Samueli. Right now, he came into the picture many many years later. Yeah, because he's younger than my dad is. Right, and that was great. We went back. I mean, that was the year Grandpa died. That year, just a couple of months after meeting all of them, they were wonderful too. Yeah, they were great. That brings you up to date. So. Not Almost. really, not really, because you then, after you moved, after you said you're not city dwellers, you moved to Miami Beach, which is definitely a change of speed. Right, it was a change of speed. Well, part of it was when we lived in St. Louis, and I hear you go again, because <laughs> we're not such city dwellers, you know, just being in a house in a city didn't appeal to us so much. We, um, Grandpa found this little sailboat in a thrift shop, mm-hmm. and he thought, ooh, I'd like to learn how to sail. How big was this? Like- it was little. It was, you know, just this, the smallest kind of sailboat you could get, a sunfish. I don't know, maybe it was 12 feet or, you know, just yeah. a little thing. And um, our neighbor, Paul, and you've met him, he knew how to sail, so he lived next door to us. So Tom bought this sailboat and said, Paul, teach me how to sail. Mm-hmm. So they took this boat out on Lake Carlisle, and he learned how to sail real fast because he 
always learned everything that he wanted to know really fast. Said, well, this sailboat's too little. Let's get a bigger boat. He bought a, another boat. I think the kids named it Tub of Love. <laughs> it was kind of a stupid name. Yeah, that's weird. But we put it on the Mississippi River mm-hmm. in East Alton, and we started sailing up and down the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. But the Mississippi is a river. It's not an ocean, and it's muddy. It's, I was going to say, it's really gross. It's gross. And, and in order to sail, you know, you don't have any wide expanses like an ocean. You have to zigzag yeah. across to get from here to there. You know, he it's really learned idea. how to sail, but it was thinking about blue water to sail on blue. So that was the next fantasy is like, how about sailing out in the wide blue yonder, mm-hmm. you know? So, so then we thought about, well, let's, let's get out of here. Mm-hmm. Let's hit the road, Jack. Yeah. So we... I mean, the kids thought we were crazy. And you can imagine a 13-year-old or a 12-year-old, that's the time all you want is to be with your friends and yeah. all that. Aniel was definitely yeah, not, not, not down for this <laughs> at all. And she said, you know, just because you're having a midlife crisis <laughs> is no reason to ruin our lives. <laughs> but so we said... Well, it doesn't have to ruin your life. You'll just see more of the world. Mm-hmm. So we brought them with us, and the rest is history, right? Mm-hmm. Grandpa really got into sailing, and he start, you know, got a different boat. And when we first came down, we didn't have a place to live, and we didn't have a job, and we didn't have any money. <laughs> you were coming, you were starting over. We're starting over. It was hard, very hard, but it all worked out. Mm-hmm. You know, the... We didn't realize that the cost of living in Miami was so much higher than the cost of living in St. Louis. Because everybody, when you talk about moving to Miami, they say, oh, the cost of living is really good. They were comparing it to New York. Yeah. But we were comparing it to St. Louis. Everything was higher. Yeah. So um, when we were looking for an apartment and like, oh, my God, the rent. You know, we had a three-story house in St. Louis. Yeah. And here we were coming to... Florida and, and the rent was so high and we still owned the house in St. Louis we couldn't sell it and you know we had all these responsibilities and your dad was the one we all we we found this apartment and we sat down and it only had two bedrooms and we had five people you know mm-hmm. so what were we going to do and we sat on the floor for a powwow because there was no furniture in there <laughs> and we said okay guys we have to think about can we make this work and your dad said we can make this work. There's a walk-in closet. Danny and I can sleep in there. <laughs> He's very much like that. That makes sense. So we put two little mattresses there for them to sleep in the walk-in closet. Mm-hmm. And they were nine, so they still were short enough to sleep in there. Mm-hmm. And and it worked for a while until we you know, got another place and another place. Mm-hmm. And Grandpa said... At that point, I don't want to get a job because if I get a job, I'll just be working at a job and I really want to devote myself to my art. And if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. Mm -hmm. And this is my opportunity and so I have to do it. Mm -hmm. So we were really broke. (laughs) I was working in Jewish Family Service, which is a nonprofit agency and I certainly wasn't making any great money. But But you're the breadwinner of the family. I was the breadwinner of the family for a while. But he was working really hard all day, and we'd go back at night on Lincoln Road, painting, 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 and that was when 
Miami Beach was just starting to become Sobe South Beach. Flourish. And people were coming down and people saw his art and started saying, oh, that's nice. Let's put it in a gallery. And he started selling. Mm -hmm. And so then everything became much better. Yeah. I don't remember where I saw this, but I remember when I was once like looking up stuff about him. I don't remember why. I found kind of an analysis of like it was like a quick biography and then it was a kind of an analysis of his paintings over time. And it was interesting to see how, like, when you lived in Missouri, the paintings were very much a certain way. And it was a lot more, like, of the land and of the clouds, as you were saying. And then as you moved down to Miami, all of the paintings got a lot more, like... Explosive. Ab- explosive, abstract, Colors. like, bright. Yeah. To, because of the way that Miami made you guys feel. Right, but also, he would say, like, the whole palette changed because... And I even saw this when I was just in St. Louis. You know, it's like the dimmer switches on yeah. there. When you come to Florida, the the light is so bright. Mm-hmm. The colors are so vibrant. Mm-hmm. And so the whole palette changed. He started using these different colors. And yet, yeah, you could see the evolution of the art from the Midwest landscape to mm-hmm. what it became with the abstraction. And it, he was just so stimulated by the environment. Mm-hmm. And it showed up in all... You know the free associations he would write on the drawings and and put I mean you see some of the paintings at your house yeah the kind of a collage and that's stream of consciousness yeah those are the ones that my parents had in my room the one that's now like when you just walk into my house my parents had that in my room I'm like you are not keeping this you are not gatekeeping this painting in your room put it outside right. so they switched it out yeah and now it's outside. But how were you able to connect with nature? Because it was probably a very hard time of your life with having kids and trying to make ends meet. How were you able to connect with nature when you were had responsibilities? I think some of those years were difficult because when you have a responsibility, you're working, you got kids to take care of, and you don't really have the kind of free time to just take a walk in the woods. You know, they're mm-hmm. just not available Mm -hmm. so a lot of the pressure of just taking care of what you have to take care of made it you know I mean when you think about how nice it would be to have that time out Mm -hmm. to just be in nature um, didn't really have that kind of time Mm -hmm. but even in St. Louis you know raising little kids there's so much beauty there Mm -hmm. in Forest Park it's just such a beautiful environment and to walk in nature and to see the changing leaves and the colors and, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. So I always appreciated it, mm-hmm. but I didn't have enough time to just enjoy it by yourself. Yeah, exactly. We, we, you know, as a family would go camping a little bit or yeah. go down to the farm or uh, do stuff, go sledding on Art Hill and St. Louis and the kids, you know, when we had this house, they had a tree house. Mm-hmm. behind our house where they would be up in that tree house you know so I think for some degree your dad and and Uncle Danny have some love for that too because yeah. they wanted to be in their tree house all day mm-hmm. you know they would be up in their tree house and they would bring snacks up there and just live up in their tree house mm-hmm. I was gonna say that it was probably such a different experience to now going from having to share your love for nature with by yourself and to with grandpa and then passing it on to your kids. I don't know that they all got 
my love of nature, but... I see it a lot in my dad. Like, he's very, like... He likes to be outside he, on the ocean. Yeah, he loves to be outside. Not even just that. Like, he obviously loves the outdoors and, like, will do anything he can to just, like, go ro- rollerblading on the beach or whatever he can. But whenever we're traveling and he just, like, always talk, he can't, he, like, can't stop talking about the nature. Like, isn't this so beautiful? Like, I'm having the best... I saw his pictures. They're amazing. Yeah. Each one of those could be, you know, a framed, gorgeous photograph the yeah. colors and everything so i see he really appreciates um nature yeah you know? he takes like i we be my emma and my dad went on a, a hike in minnesota i was and he like just like was so amazed by the different types of leaves that he literally like was picking leaves and then i like, gave it to emma to hold to bring back so he could like paint it in his sketchbook and every single place we visit like not even just on the road trip we recently went on but whenever we have ever traveled anywhere he's like oh i can see myself living here like why do we'll figure right. out how to I get remember cr- he came back last year saying i could see myself living in wyoming yeah wyoming <laughs> he was like okay i'm he was like trying to logistically plan out how he's going to get kosher meat to wyoming and we're like you don't have to worry about this like please stop but he always talks about like when we all move out of the house how he wants to sell our house and buy an rv and just travel with my mom because I think he, like, he's he's gotten your flexibility, uh-huh. for sure, and his adaptability from you. Right, and his ability to talk to anybody about anything. Oh, yeah, you'll hear about that soon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's great. I think it was great that that's something that you could pass on. Right, and it's not something you do consciously. It's just, yeah. you know, I think... Exposure. To some degree, kids inherit without any conscious awareness of the traits and the desires of their parents, Mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, your dad's artistic ability and sensitivity to art, Mm -hmm. you know, is something that it just kind of in him. It's not like Tom tried to teach him anything or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It's just that he, he had a natural love for it because it was always around and and for nature that we loved it. And, you know, in your family, you'll see you you inherit from both your parents. Yeah. I already, I already see the different qualities and different values I have from each of my parents. Right. And it's a good thing your parents are so different. Yes. (laughs) Very different. You you get from both of the extremes (laughs) to balance each other out. Yeah. My mom always, like, whenever I'm, like, sometimes, like, how can you stand him? Like, what do you do? She's like, we balance each other out. Like, you'll, that's you'll see. That's exactly true. I think that's why sometimes me and my dad, like, we are very similar in a lot of ways. Like, I'm also similar to my mom in different ways, but mostly I think I'm similar to my dad. And there's some things that, like, whenever I've, I've noticed this about, re- not relationships with boys, but whenever I kind of am looking at boys as, like, potential whatever I see how ways that I'm trying to connect with them and things that I like am looking for are things that I connect with my dad with when because me and my dad connect a lot with music and with art and whatever like we hang out it's most of the time going to an art museum or music festival or concert that's kind of something that I'm looking for that's it's subconsciously like I realized this recently that I'm I always like look at a boy first and like see if they like those things because then what are they sensitive to? Yeah. You want to be able to meet them at that level yeah. of connection. Yeah, I think that's, you know, I think of art also like nature. It's it's something that takes you out of yourself mm-hmm. into something much bigger. Mm-hmm. You know, art and nature 
help you expand your imagination. Mm -hmm. And when you are very focused on what you are doing and what impact you're having with whatever your career or your, you know, success is about, it's limiting. But mm -hmm. when you open up, art is like infinite. Yeah. And nature is infinite. And, you know, both Grandpa and I were into, it's like expansion. You yeah. Know, expanding beyond our little lives into mm -hmm. the big whole wide world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I It's something that I see with, I'm thinking about like the, I just canceled my gym membership because I'm obviously leaving and I'm not going to go. But it's, I stopped going because I will go on, even I think that the gym is a lot more grind, grind, grind. Like I will probably have a better workout at the gym, but I feel a lot better when I work out and go on a walk outside because it's just, it's just like a breath of fresh air, literally and figuratively. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's good to be aware. I can see how you have incorporated nature now, like through all the things that you've learned and all the experiences you have. Like you're living on a lake right now and we're right now in her little yoga studio looking at the lake. Mm -hmm. And for her birthday, we get her like a paddleboard. a paddleboard. Like that's what she likes to do is to be outside. And your garden, like you were just showing us how you just had this amazing fresh basil from your garden. So you've incorporated nature. Yeah, I mean, I think gardening is a wonderful way to stay in touch with the rhythm of nature, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that what goes in comes out. You know, I put in my compost and it out comes mm -hmm. into beautiful basil leaves. You know, to me, that's staying very much in tune mm -hmm. with nature. Yeah, it's a part of what I do. I think, you know, just thinking this is going more to life lessons from the whole picture and nature is, you know, a big theme for me, but mm -hmm. the you know, I think of that as kind of a spiritual awareness mm -hmm. when you're aware of something much bigger than yourself, mm -hmm. like nature or like art. Mm -hmm. um, and in my work, even though I'm confined to sitting at a desk at a computer now that I'm doing everything virtually with telehealth, mm -hmm. that's really where I like to take people. You know, people come with their constricted problems and feeling stress and friction in themselves and conflict mm -hmm. and and to help them expand out of that tight place in their own minds mm -hmm. to open them up to something much bigger mm -hmm. you know and and that you know you could say it's a a spiritual approach to therapy that's where I like to go and all these things that we've been talking about you know like being able not to be so dependent on the externals of how other people see you but the freedom that you can create inside mm -hmm. uh, connecting to these larger experiences mm -hmm. you know I think that's so beneficial for people mm -hmm. you know it's like it's an internal connection with yourself. You know, like when you get in touch with that real feeling of, I can breathe again. You know, like mm -hmm. you're saying, the breath of fresh air, figuratively and literally, is when, you, when you're feeling inside, like, oh, I feel all is right in the world. Mm -hmm. Kind of like I felt as a little girl going outside and saying, yes, this, this, <laughs> this is, is good. Great. Yeah. This is good. And I want to help people feel like that in themselves, inside. You know, like, yes, I feel 
everything is exactly the way it should be. Mm -hmm. And then outside also is like to connect to you're just one little organism in the whole universe mm -hmm. and everything fits together. We're all interconnected. Mm -hmm. If each organism, if each cell in our body is happy, then the whole body is healthy. Mm -hmm. But if one part of you feels wrong, the whole body feels wrong. Mm -hmm. So if one person feels at peace and everybody feels at peace, then the you know that's my ideal world. Yeah. The universe is in harmony, mm -hmm. which is very far from where we are these days. Mm -hmm. Is there any practical advice you could give to anyone listening about how to connect spiritually with nature considering the world we live in it's pretty hard to my advice is to go be in nature <laughs> go outside go outside not just outside i mean you could but go to a place where there's space mm -hmm. spaciousness we're in florida so going to the ocean is a is a wonderful place to go mm -hmm. where you're in i love the fact that you could look out in the ocean there are no billboards, there are no buildings, mm -hmm. there's nothing but space. Mm -hmm. That's great advice. <laughs> the easiest advice you could give to anyone. Is right, just to go and outside. if you don't live by an ocean, you know, just go where there's space. Yeah. Um, or if you live near the woods, or if you live near a mountain, go where there's no billboards, no buildings, mm -hmm. and just, I'm a tree hugger. Yes, you are, <laughs> you're definitely a tree hugger. And, you know, if you, if you get close to a tree and you just stay in the tree's energy, you feel better. Yeah. Trees know how to root themselves. They know how to reach up to the sky. Mm -hmm. That's a great image for what we need to do with ourselves is to really establish the grounding and also to reach up into the vastness of the universe. Mm -hmm. It's a great image. I love that. <laughs> That's why I'm a tree hugger. You are definitely a tree hugger. Well, thank you for giving us, sharing your wisdom with us, Mother Grandmother Nature. Um, I really appreciate it, and I'm sure people would be very interested to hear your story. <laughs>